Amen. Well, good morning. We are so glad that you are joining us like this. We wish we were all together in the same building, but we're so glad that we're able to join with each other like this. Uh, my name is Sam, and I have the privilege of having my son with me today. Asher, I'm nine years old. Happy Easter. <laughs> we rehearsed that several times. Can you tell? Uh, but we're glad that you're joining with us. We want to just remind you of a few things that will help us stay connected through this shelter-in-place time, however long that goes. Um, the first is, as we mentioned up front, we would love to hear from you this morning. So you can use that text in line 716-262-9479. And we'd love to hear a couple specific things. One, what does Easter mean to you? And secondarily, uh, what are you eating today? Share that with us. We'd love to, we'd love to hear from you. We also encourage you to just text each other, text friends and family. Maybe think of somebody you haven't spoken to in a while and just reach out to them. Say hello, say happy Easter, tell them you love them. But uh, we encourage you to do so, to stay connected in the midst of this shelter in place. Uh, many of you have joined with us as we have read through the Gospel of Matthew. That's been a wonderful thing for us as a church to, to learn and to grow and to read together. And we are going to continue to do that, but we're going to start a new book here pretty soon. We are going to read through Acts. We'd like you to join with us. So we're going to read through the book of Acts, and we're going to post the information about our reading plan on our website, CrossroadsLive.com, and we're going to continue to hear from folks at our church that have been sharing those devotionals. Uh, those have been wonderful, and we're going to continue those too. So go to our website, CrossroadsLive.com, and check out the Acts reading plan and continue to, to dive in with us. We appreciate those of you who had made, have made the adjustment to continue uh, your giving, whether that's online or sending to our physical locations. We encourage you to continue to do that. Uh, we appreciate many of you who have made the adjustments from your normal writing checks in our buildings, um, but you can do that online and send them to our facilities as well. That would be wonderful. We're going to start some new virtual small groups as we have thought through what are some ways that we can connect with each other. Um, Zoom, the program Zoom has been a great thing for us to be able to do that. And so we're going to launch some small groups. So if you're interested in joining a virtual small group where we meet once a week virtually on Zoom and talk through uh, the sermon and just connect with each other, uh, we invite you to email office at crossroadslive.com and we will reach out with you with some details as to how to get plugged into those groups. We have one last thing that we want to share with you. We took some pictures as a church and we'd like you to take some and post them online. We have a few of our favorites that we'd love to share with you this morning. So enjoy these Easter photos. Yeah, that Lego one's probably a personal favorite of mine. The attention to detail is impeccable. So well, well done. Uh, but if you haven't done so already, we really encourage you to take a, take a photo, whether it's a serious one or a silly one, uh, put it online so we can see you. It helps us uh, maintain connection during this shelter in place time. Uh, not only did we take some photos, we also asked some of the folks at Crossroads to just share what does Easter mean to you. And so let's check out this video together this morning. God came 
to earth to set us free. And he proved it by raising from the dead, by beating death once and for all and taking on our punishment for sin. And because of that, we get to walk in the freedom of Christ every single day and have relationship with him in our homes and in our hearts. It does not get more beautiful than that. Easter is everything. Easter reminds me of the hope of heaven, the hope of eternity with Jesus forever and ever. And until that day, walking in the newness of this life he's given me, um, filled with joy, which can only come through my Savior, Jesus. And I just think it's so beautiful, uh, starting Palm Sunday, but Good Friday too, where um, we celebrate a similar thing, the most important exodus in our lives, um, God setting us free from sin. And so, um, to me, more than anything, Easter is just that celebration of the most important work that's ever been accomplished in my life. What was meant for destruction and evil, God uses for beauty, just like Jesus dying on the cross and being resurrected. Instead of running from the brokenness of our past, my husband and I are able to share a story and to come alongside other marriages and bring glory to God. Since I know that he was faithful to redeem my marriage and he was faithful to resurrect Jesus from the dead, my hope is in God's faithfulness to send Jesus back again. To me, Easter is a celebration and a time to praise Jesus for his unforgettable sacrifice. He lived and died on the cross and rose from the grave for our sins. It reminds me of freedom and love. Freedom from our sin, freedom from bondage, and Christ's love for us. He sent his only son to die on the cross just for us to live eternally in heaven with him because he loves us. I knew it meant that he rose from the dead to save us. What I didn't know is that I was dead and he saved me and I am forever grateful. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if he did not raise from the dead, our faith is in vain and we of all people are to be pitied. So for me, his resurrection from the dead means everything. Easter is just also a time that shows me how powerful Jesus is. Like if he can conquer death, then he can conquer anything that I'm struggling with. And he is the best and most loyal friend that I could ever find. And we can always trust in him. And he showed his unfailing love for us by pouring out his precious blood on the cross just so that we can have a personal relationship with him. And that's what Easter means to me. Easter for our family is about hope and about truth. This Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the death and the life of Jesus. The truth is, he did what he said he was going to do, and we live in light of that truth. We are anchored in it, especially in these dark and uncertain days that we find ourselves in. We hold on to that, and that gives us hope. Well, amen. We truly believe that Jesus changes everything. And as each of those stories speak to that truth, that 
people in our church and well beyond have been transformed by the message in the life of Jesus. And so this morning we step into that story and we proclaim the goodness of who he is. I really quickly want to just say thank you to those of you who participated in that video. Uh, It was so fun to hear your full stories as you shared through what Jesus means to you, what Easter means to you, and uh, just what you've experienced. And And I love just kind of where we're at right now. They're just filming that at home, kind of the best we can. And it just, it feels so raw and real because the message is real. It is authentic. And that's what we want to celebrate in these moments, that Jesus is good news. And if we're all honest with ourselves, uh, we could all use a little bit of good news right now. As we have been uh, in our homes for these last few weeks, kind of experiencing this unprecedented time, I know uh, for some in conversations I'm having, you're kind of reaching your limit. You're like, I'm, I'm ready to get out again. But we also understand uh, kind of what's at stake in the midst of all of this. And so we, we're, we're looking for, for some glimmer of hope. I happened to see this picture uh, earlier this week of of a father who was introducing his daughter to her grandfather. And and you can see in this picture that there's a glass door between them because they couldn't interact because of the shelter in place. And it just kind of encapsulates uh, this strange time that we find ourselves in. But I love what the dad said. He said, he said this, and it's so simple in the way he expressed it. He said, this, this is not normal. This is not fun. This is actually the worst feeling ever, this separation that they're feeling. He said, but I know that this is temporary. And what I find so true of that statement is that in this moment we find ourselves in, we recognize this tension that right now things are not as they are meant to be. We find ourselves longing for what was and, and longing for what will be someday again. And, and it highlights this, this greater tension that I think rides underneath the surface for all of us. See, most of the time we're so busy that we can't recognize it. But in moments like this where things pause and our schedules aren't quite as busy, we can pay attention a little bit differently. And I've noticed this kind of increase in, in fear that's, that's present in this moment as we're dealing with the threat of death that seems to be at every door. And it's all around us. And it's a way that's confronted our own mortality in, in, in ways we don't like to acknowledge or like to, to sit with. But again, we, we haven't been able to ignore it with our usual schedules and our usual distractions. And so as we gather in this moment on Easter Sunday... For many of us, we come longing for that glimmer of hope, that that break of dawn to come and cut through the darkness. And let me tell you, if, if that's where you find yourself, then you're in good company. See, the first Easter morning, we read, if, if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, we, we read this. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, they're on their way. It's, it's the first day of the week. Sabbath has ended, and now as, as dawn is coming, they're making their way, these two Marys making their way to the tomb. And it's not just the tomb of anyone. See, this is the tomb where hope is buried. See, from the time hope burst onto the scene, he taught in such a way that it it captured all people's attention. 
The one who lied buried now in this tomb had come healing the sick. He even raised Lazarus from the dead. He walked on water. He fed the multitudes. He taught with an authority that that arrested people's attention. He could speak to the skeptic and the religious alike. Everyone was paying attention to this man who, who walked around. But it wasn't just the miracles. It wasn't just his, his teaching. See, wherever he went, hope followed. And many had begun to believe that this this was the one that they had been waiting for. This was the Messiah, the anointed one who would set all things right. The true king had finally returned. And people began to see the possibility of something different. You see, this, this Jesus was no ordinary man. And yet, as we step into Holy Week, we recognize that by the time the sun had gone down on Friday night, Jesus was being pulled from a cross, dead, and and laid in a tomb, buried. And at that moment, hope was lost, buried in that tomb. The one who seemed so different, so other, so out of the ordinary, died on a cross. He met the same end as all of us and seemingly death had won. And so we discover these two women making their way in the early hours of the morning to go to the tomb where their hope, their friend, their savior lay. See, now, if we we stop there and we pause just for a moment, uh, we we feel the weight of it. But if you know anything of Scripture, if you've you've read along at all, if you've heard any of the stories, you know that is so often the case. It's in these moments of despair where God is still on the move, and he's going to show up in unexpected ways. He was about to meet the deep need of humanity in a way well beyond what we could ever do on our own. God was going to show up in a way that was and is consistent with who he is and who he has always proclaimed himself to be. Now, this is important for us to understand that God lets us know early in in the story in the pages of scripture of of who he is. And it matters who he proclaims himself to be, but it also matters in how he shows up. Now, if you've been journeying along with us for the last several months, you know, as a, as a church family, we have been working our way through the Exodus story. Now, the account of Exodus is, is a story that, that works its way throughout Scripture. It's like a musical theme that just arrives over and over again that the, the people of Israel draw back on because God showed up in such a powerful and mighty way. It's a story that's been made into movies multiple times over, and it's the account of God rescuing and redeeming his people in an unexpected fashion. So before we jump into where we're going to look at in Exodus, I want to catch you up on the story just so we can feel the, the, the full moment that we are about to look at. The Israelites had been enslaved for over 400 years. They were held under the empire of Egypt and they were oppressed and exploited and enslaved and afflicted. 
Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, represented the very worst of humanity. And in this moment, we are told that the Israelites cried out to God for him to rescue them. And what we hear in the account is that God shows up. He hears them and he begins a rescue mission as as one of the greatest rescue missions of all time. See, God would call a man by the name of Moses. Moses was a, a Hebrew slave that was actually raised in the house of Pharaoh. He would later flee Egypt uh, as a murderer, and he would become a, a shepherd of sheep living in obscurity. But God would use this man as a, as a go-between, as a mediator between his people and himself. And, and so this Moses would stand in the gap and he would speak on God's behalf. And what we watch unfold in those first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus is this clash between God and Pharaoh. It's where we see the plagues, the, the Passover. We see God do uh, uh, extraordinary acts that finally lead to the exodus, the departure of God's people leaving Egypt. See, the people of God would find themselves walking through water on dry ground because of the miraculous movement of God. And what we see is a God who pursues his people and rescues them and redeems them. And he set them free. The tension of what was, the slavery they found themselves in was now being lived in the beauty of what could be. This relationship with God that he had now established with them and God would draw them in as his people. He would take them as his own. He would point them and instruct them in the way in which they should live. He would give them this law, but it was more of a a, a pointing of, of the way that they could flourish as human beings in relationship with God. And he would call this relationship a covenant relationship. The best example we have is within marriage, that that no matter what happened, God said, I'm going to show up and you will be my people. And and it sounds like this would be the happily ever after, but we know from reading along that that it wasn't. That there's a lot of unsettledness to come. As a matter of fact, in a moment of tension, in a moment of the unknown, when the people were wondering just what God was up to, they, they panicked and they turned from God. They began to look for other means of salvation, for other means of life. And they, they turned from their very creator who had designed them to flourish in relationship with him. And they rejected him for something that they created with their own hands. And what we see is that so often this very same story is repeated over and over and over and over and over and over again throughout human history. God is in pursuit of his people, and yet humanity chooses to ignore him and turn away. And in this moment in Exodus, what we see is that that God doesn't just kind of take this on the chin. No, God is is angry. Now, some of you listening, you you recognize an angry God because that's, that's where you turn your attention towards. You feel as though God is just that one who's waiting for you to mess up. He's always just kind of looking over your shoulder and then he can get you. But what we see in this moment is is not just God irrationally angry. We see that he is angry, 
But he has this beautiful interaction that we looked at last week with Moses, that the two of them interact and God actually doesn't enact his full wrath on the people. There's repercussions, there's damage done, but instead what we see though is God move forward in restoring his relationship with his people because he's constantly pursuing them just as he's constantly pursuing us. Now I know you're, you're thinking right now, we are a long way from those two women at the tomb as they were making their way towards Jesus. But hang with me because this is important. What comes next in Exodus? See, God and Moses have this conversation where, where God is reestablishing his covenant relationship with his people. And Moses asked this question that I think many of us ask. He's like, I just want to see you, God. I just want to see your glory. I want to see your presence. Can I, can I see you? And what's amazing is God says, okay, you, you can see me, but you can't take the full impact of who I am. So I'm going to hide you in this rock. And as I pass by, you're going to see kind of the trail of my glory, the weight of my goodness as it passes by. And see, this is where it gets interesting because this is where God is about to reveal who he is. He's about to proclaim his very nature to us, which matters. It matters for the resurrection and it matters for us here and now today. Because he clearly states to Moses, this is who I am. This is what I am about. So if you have your Bible out with you, turn with me to Exodus 34. And we're going to jump in at verse 6. And we're just going to read these two verses together. And so here's where we pick up. The Lord passed before him. He passed before Moses and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, I, I want us. I want us to pause here for a second because there's a temptation to just say, can we just get going to the real point of the story we came to celebrate this morning? But I, I, want, you to, I want you to listen again as I read this. And as I read it, I want you to notice what comes first, what God describes of his character first. And I want you to let this sit in. So, so listen with me again. I'm just going to read these two verses uh, one more time. The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, I know there's a lot going on there, but hopefully you are paying attention to the order in which God presents himself. Did you catch it? At that front end, he begins by saying that he is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, chesed, this, this word that's rich in meaning and we find throughout the scriptures that describes God's love towards his people. That he's abounding in steadfast love. That he's abounding in faithfulness. This word amet, which means truthfulness and reliability. See, God is proclaiming 
his character to Moses in this moment. And what we see is this passage we will hear the echoes of throughout scripture as people pull from this description, remembering and reminding themselves of just who this God is. And he's merciful. Sometimes this word is translated as compassionate. It means that he cares. He, he pays attention to what's happening. He doesn't just set the world in motion and say, good luck to you all. No, he, he's deeply invested. And he's, he has mercy and compassion towards us. He's, he's gracious. He's kind towards his people. This means that he often provides for his people in ways that, that they don't deserve, that he shows up in ways that, that we don't deserve because he's so gracious. He's slow to anger. This, this word here actually plays this beautiful picture in the Hebrew language. It means he's, he's long of nose, which sounds funny for us. We think of maybe Pinocchio being long of nose, but this, this has a different meaning. It means that, that the breath of his nostrils does not come out quickly. That he doesn't flare his nostrils quickly. Now, if you think about the times when you flare your nostrils, it's usually when you're angry. It's usually when your blood is pumping. And this is saying that he's not quick to be hot of breath. When I, when I read this, the image I always have is, is from a, a Discovery Channel show I was watching where there was lion cubs playing with their father and they're just jumping all over him and they're biting his ears and they're just hanging off of him and he doesn't flinch. He just sits there knowing he could overpower these little cubs at any moment, but he just patiently deals with them. For our God is slow to anger. But, but don't miss this. While he's patient, while he's long-suffering, while he's slow to, to anger, this also means that he gets angry. And that we see that within Scripture at times where he is angry and righteously so. And so he's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's, he's, he's abounding, overflowing. It just comes out of him. He's abounding in steadfast love. And again, this is that word has said, which means covenant, loyal, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. One word does not encapsulate this word. It's, it's God's loyal love towards his people. It's this unbreakable bond that he shows. This has said. And then his faithfulness, he is abounding in faithfulness and met. He is abounding in truth. He is abounding in reliability. We can count on the one who is proclaiming this truth about himself. And so as we step back and we look at these attributes and these, these characteristics of God, we, we recognize uh, there's a lot of good tucked in here. And as he's describing himself, he continues on saying that he keeps his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, this statement of iniquity, transgression, and sin, this is kind of catching all the wrong that we experience or commit or see in our own lives. This is one of those lists that we look at and we find ourselves in here somewhere. Iniquity is any kind of wrong behavior. Transgression kind of carries with it this tone of rebellion, this willing, uh, this willing turn towards something other than the way things should be. And sin, sin is any time we miss the mark. It's any time we, we do wrong. And so in these three little words, we, we find ourselves all over the place. Whether we want to or not, we, 
are here. We've all committed iniquity, transgression, and sin at some point in our life. But we see that God is saying that he is faithful and loving to the thousands, to the thousands generation as what he's speaking to here. And he says, I'm forgiving, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's part of who he is. And it's also, it's active. This idea of forgiveness, it's active on God's part. I love how one scholar states it like this. He says, he does not reluctantly forgive sins against himself and others. He does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character. God eagerly forgives. Now, when you hear that, think of the last time you eagerly forgave someone. You're probably still trying to find an example of that. Usually for us, forgiveness is something we have to work up to and get to this moment. But here we see that God is eagerly pressing forward, pursuing his people, ready to forgive. Should we turn back towards him? Should we confess where we have gone wrong? He is waiting for that moment to shower his forgiveness upon us. And so the image we see, the characteristics we see God building and painting in this moment is that he is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and he is willing to forgive and eagerly awaits to forgive our waywardness. Now here's, here's where I think the problem comes in for us. As we hear this, and it sounds too good to be true, we don't really believe this part we resonate more with the picture of an angry God. Some, somehow that seems to stir up more in us that he's just waiting for us to screw up and then he's going to get us and, and give us the old I told you so and, and you're gonna, never going to amount to anything and, and you shouldn't even try. See, that's, that's the picture that for some reason locks in us. So when he says that I am merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, we kind of keep that at arm's length. It sounds too good to be true. And, and if we're honest, too many of us have been burned too many times by things that have sounded too good to be true. That's why infomercials exist, because we keep buying things we don't need and just to be disappointed by them. And so we keep this at an arm's length. And God is like, no, you have to trust me. This is who I am. But this passage continues and God continues to describe himself. And, and, and this is where a little bit of our, our, our skepticism and cynicism is going to come out. I say that before I even read it because I know you've just been waiting. But wait, I heard when you read this the first time, there's this part about visiting iniquity on, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And God is just vindictive. So let's, let's read this together. Picking up in, in verse 7, it says, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And then here it comes. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. And this is where I hear all skeptics kind of with the resounding, see? See, he's just out, he's just out to get me. He, he's just out to punish. He's, he's vindictive. He's, he's coming after us. But I, I want us to, to stop ourselves from running too far down that narrative because God's actually saying something very profound in this moment. See, what he's proclaiming is not that he's out to get you and to destroy you. What he's proclaiming in this moment is that he hates evil. He hates what sin has done to his creation. 
Now, you might think when we look around at human history that he has a strange way of showing it, but this is, this is true. He hates evil. He hates it. God hates when people are exploited. He hates when people are taken advantage. He hates when we take advantage of others. He hates when people are oppressed. He hates when people are abused. He hates it. And what he's saying in this moment is that those who are guilty will experience justice. That justice will not go unmet. That there will be a day that we all stand before him and are judged. And there will be a day when those who turn towards him, those who confess of their sins and and proclaim the truth of who he is and what he offers, we will experience every tear being wiped from our eyes. Where the new heaven and the new earth will be a place that is entirely absent of evil. See, this is what God is is moving towards. This is what he's proclaiming in this moment. But you still might say, but what about that whole thing of visiting the iniquity, the transgressions of fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? That sounds a, a, a bit vindictive. That sounds a little petty, like he's going after us there. But what God is revealing and what he's making very clear in this moment is while he is merciful and he is gracious, that sin shall be accounted for in every generation. That we, we don't get the luxury of saying, well, that's, that's my parents' fault. That's somebody else's fault. No, we, we all have to take account for our own wrong actions. But here's the other thing we recognize too, that sin is not individual. Our wrong actions bleed into the actions of others. And, and parents, we know this all too well, that our mistakes do pour into our kids. And so God is proclaiming in this moment that all this wrongdoing will be accounted for. Now, I I know what you're saying. That doesn't sound as hopeful as the first part. That maybe wasn't what you wanted to hear in this moment. But what, what I want you to hear is that what God is proclaiming of who he is and what he's proclaiming over all his creation is that evil will not win. Evil will not get a free pass. Evil will not get the last word. And although in our own lives, we often would like immediate justice. When someone cuts us off, we'd like them to get a ticket right then and there. We'd like action. When we've been wronged and deeply hurt by the actions of others, we, we want to know, where are you, God? And the truth is that God is not absent in that moment, nor is he apathetic. But what he's reminding his people of is that there's a very real cost to our sin and our transgression. But even in the midst of that, he is reminding us that he is in pursuit of his people. You see, this passage is the good news of Exodus. And it's found in various forms throughout scripture. People pull from this, authors of scripture pull from this language. We find it in the Psalms as they're reminding themselves of God's grace and his mercy and his justice. This is God revealing himself. And these are words that we can cling to. For he is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is keeping steadfast love for thousands. He is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
but he will by no means clear guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. And so often when we think of God, we think of how do we tip the scales? How do we do more good than bad? How do we, how do we show up in a way that he approves? And what, what I love is, is one author, John Mark Comer, a pastor and author, John Mark Comer, puts it like this. He says, the, gale, the scale of, of God's action tipped towards his steadfast love. See, in this very verse, he talks around that his steadfast love, his faithfulness will be for thousands of generations. And the, the pursuit in those feeling the iniquity of their sins will be to the third and fourth generation. It's, it's an uneven balance as God, again, eagerly is awaiting to forgive us should we turn towards him. This is who God is. This is who he always is. And he would send prophet after prophet. He, he would send writer after writer to proclaim this. That he would make himself known to his people. When they would turn from him, he would look to restore their waywardness, to proclaim his love and to show that he is merciful, that he is great, gracious. And still, his people didn't listen. Much like still, we, we don't often listen. And so finally, he came to tell us himself. And not only to tell us, but to show us what his love and mercy and grace look like in flesh. So you th think of it like this. When I, when I first started to, to pursue Rachel, before we were even dating, as I was trying to make my intentions known to her, did I, did I send somebody in my place? No, no, I was, I was very intentional. I wanted her to know that I liked her, right? And I, and I more than liked her. I, I was, I was, I was going to pursue her something fierce. And so she and her friends had had uh, this, this dinner party and I was a part of it. And so I thought, you know, the best way for me to show my interest is, well, you know, I'm just going to thank the whole house by baking them some cookies. But really, my motives were very clear. I wanted to hand that plate of cookies to Rachel so that she knew that really this was all for her. Because I wanted her to know how I felt about her. In the same way, the first time I proclaimed that I, I loved her, did I have somebody else? Hey, could you just go let her know? that I love her? Could you just, could you just tell her? No, no, I, I proclaimed that to her. And I can tell you right where we were in, in the parking lot uh, of Starbucks as we were in the car together. And I just proclaimed that I, I love you. And thankfully she proclaimed it right back. Cause there's always that awkward moment where you're like, am, am I, am I all in? And she's not, but she was there with me. And we proclaimed that love. And then, and then when I proposed to her, did I send somebody else? No, no, I was there on my knee proposing to her. And then for our wedding, well, for our wedding, I had a stand-in come and stand there, and, and I thought I could just go enjoy the hors d'oeuvres first. No, I was there. I stood there waiting for her to come down to receive her so she could see the look in my eyes. I wanted her to know the depth of my love for her. See, and this is what we see God do in the depth of his love and the depth of his pursuit for us. In John 1, 14, we read these words. It says, in the word, and this is describing Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What this is proclaiming, what John is making sure we don't miss in this moment is he's saying that the word, that Jesus has come and he has dwelt, he has tabernacled is the word there. He is, he is set his tent in the midst of his people. He's moved into the neighborhood. He's going to live among them. And so God has come and dwelt among us. 
and we've seen his glory. We've seen what he looks like in action. And then he says he is full of grace and truth. Now, remember when I said we see echoes of the Exodus passage throughout scripture. This is one of those moments. Because put another way, grace and truth is that he is full of chesed and amet. Put another way, Jesus is full of compassionate love and faithfulness. See, John is is making it very clear in this moment that who God said he was in the Exodus account is who Jesus is in the flesh. And we see it in his actions and we see it in his life. He is merciful and he is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But not only does Jesus say this, he lives it as he extends grace and mercy to all those he encounters. As he reaches out into the margins of society, showing compassion and drawing people to his truth and inviting them to pattern their lives after him. We also see that Jesus is slow to anger, but he gets angry. And we see that most directly with those who are are hypocrites, are, are oppressing others. Jesus does not suffer evil well. And when he sees it, we see him go into the temple and he's flipping tables. There's even a passage of scripture that talks around him fashioning a whip Because he's coming with a vengeance. Because people are putting extra blocks between God and and himself. And he, he wants it no longer. He wants to clear the path. But Jesus also recognizes that there's a great need for justice to be met. That the, the wages of sin is, is death. And that debt needs to be paid. And that means death. See, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read this. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus, in his pursuit of us, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Where Moses gave the law and the Torah and the instruction, Jesus has come and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the pathway to God. Follow me and you will live. And not only does he live this perfect life, but he even takes on our death so that in him we might live. You see, in this, this brings us back to the tomb, a place of of death, a place of finality, as two women walk towards the tomb, we recognize that everything is about to change. So let's pick back up. Let's, let's jump back now to Matthew 28, 1. And we read this. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, 
Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen. As he said. See, even in death, Jesus brings life. And this angel proclaims, he is not here. The one you are looking for, the crucified Jesus, he is not here. He has risen. Death has been conquered once and for all. But I love what the angel says. He says, he is not here for he has risen as he said. Jesus was very clear. You destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. And the one who is full of grace and truth, he speaks the truth. And he is faithful and he is reliable and he lives the truth. He can back up everything that he says for he is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in this moment, as these two women approach the tomb, everything seemed lost. And yet in this moment, hope flooded the earth once more. The sun broke through the darkness and the grief that was once so heavy turned to elation as Jesus was and is alive. You see, these two women walked towards the tomb thinking death had won. But in an instant, now all they were thinking was, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For Jesus has swallowed death in victory and death no longer has the final word. For Jesus is alive. But what does this mean for us today? Well, let me just start by saying this means that God is exactly who he says he is. And in his great pursuit of humanity and in his great pursuit of us still, we never have to walk alone. We never have to face uncertainty without the certainty of being known by our creator. And we never have to allow our past to predict our future. You see, Jesus offers to each of us life. Life in him, life with him. And his offer to each of us is the forgiveness of our sins. He is eager to forgive if we turn towards him. See, Jesus offered to follow him and not only experience a life of, of mercy and grace, steadfast love and faithfulness, but his offer is also for us now to participate alongside him in a life that is now marked by mercy, grace, steadfast love and faithfulness. See, as the Mandalorian would say, this is the way. And this is the way of Jesus to step into mercy. We recognize his compassion and live a life extending compassion. To step into his grace, we recognize he has offered far more than we deserve. And now we can extend that very same grace to all those around us. When we step into his forgiveness, We recognize that he has met the debt of our sins and we can now extend forgiveness to those around us. When we step into his abounding love, we recognize that there is enough love for all. And in turn, we can be generous with that love. And when we step into his abounding faithfulness, his reliableness, we recognize that he is true. 
and he is faithful. And in turn, we can live a life of truth and faithfulness. And so I say to all of you who are weary, to all of you who are heavy laden, to all of you who feel lost, to all who feel unworthy, to all who are tired, our risen Savior, Jesus, invites you into his rest. He invites you into life. He invites you into living hope. And my prayer for each of us is that we would take him at his word, that we would trust that he is gracious and true, and that we would confess our sins, turn towards him, and step into life with him. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we, we celebrate today that you are who you said you are. You are merciful, you are gracious. You are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That you eagerly forgive us when we turn towards you. And Lord, we thank you for that truth. We thank you that you have shown us this and demonstrated this through Jesus, that he came and showed us what a life lived fully to your glory looks like. But not only that, Lord, he stepped in, he took our, our debt and he paid it all. But he did not stay in the tomb. He rose again and he is alive. And Father, one day we look towards that moment when he will return and all things will be set right. When evil will have no place in the world around us. And until then, we trust in you, we live for you, and we live like you. Where we extend mercy and grace And loving kindness to those around us in your name, making much of you, Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for what this day means. We thank you that we are resurrection people, living in the hope of you. That death did not have the final word, but you and you alone have the final word. So may we hear your word spoken over us and turn towards you. We love you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.